0: Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion people and food production will need to grow by 70%. Farmers are working with IBM and Watson to help increase their crop yields. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me, I'm Peter Kafka. I'm here at Vox Media headquarters in New York City. I'm talking to Ben Fritz from the Wall Street Journal. Um, He's written a new book called The Big Picture, The Fight for the Future of Movies. Hey, Ben. Hey, Peter. Um, That's called an introduction. Before we go further, (laughs) I want to ask you to recommend this podcast to a friend, to the internet. I've been sending out emails recommending Ben's book. I sent out a Twitter DM yesterday recommending Ben's book. Someone wrote back and said, I'm in line at Barnes & Noble to see Ben speak. So that is how one does sort of (laughs) hand-to-hand promotion. I'm asking (laughs) you guys to do that so you can listen to this podcast for free. Okay, Golder, is that an adequate promotion? Okay, right. see, so we're going to make goldeye a character on the show. <laughs> and now, Ben, welcome. Thank you, Peter. I wanted to work with you for years. That's right. You've you, re- you rejected for a long time. my entreaties, <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> this will count. You've written this awesome book. It's about the movie business. Yes. If you listen to this podcast, so you're a nerd who likes media and the business of media and how technology is changing that. This is for you. Right. It's a great book. I finished the whole thing.
1: Last chapter on the subway. Here, give me the thesis of the book thesis of the book is that we've really we've entered a new era of the movie business which i call the the franchise era of filmmaking um the movie business correctly understood now i think is driven primarily by by brands by branded franchises you know your marvel your fast and furious your transformers your star wars and uh you know, the age of the age of movie stars or the age of original films, the age of diverse slates by studios is over. And uh, those those movies, to the extent they're still created, are really on on the fringes of the business.
0: If you are someone who wonders why every movie is a superhero movie yes. or a Transformers movie, if you like that, mm-hmm. if you complain about that, this is the book that explains that. And this is a, a nuance that, that you explained quite clearly. I hadn't really processed all the way through. The idea of Movie studios spending a lot of time and attention on big blockbusters is not a new idea. And what has happened over the last 10 or 15 years is instead of saying we're making a Bruce Willis movie or right. a Tom Cruise movie is that we're making a movie that's about Star Wars or the Transformers or some
1: brand that you presumably already know. Right. Yeah. Certainly, you know, there have been big budget summer movies since Jaws. Right. But uh, now it's the it's not about the movie stars. The star vehicle is over the Will Smith vehicle, the Bruce Willis vehicle is definitely over, and it's, it's these brands that are, that are managed just as much as Procter & Gamble manages their brands. That's what the most successful movie studios do, and the brands are really what's relevant to consumers globally. If you, know, you're, you, you, you buy an Apple product because you're loyal to Apple, you go see a Marvel movie because you're loyal to Marvel, and, and you know, this has transformed the economics of the business uh, you know, for sure.
0: And, and you explain this in depth, sort of the why. Um, Let's see if I got my reading comprehension correct. Um, But it seems like you're you're calling out three specific things that sort of push the business this way. Uh, One is the internet and and specifically Netflix and the Mm -hmm. fact that they're sort of bringing so much content to you at home. Uh, Two is the death of DVDs which cut out sort of a really profitable part of the business and allowed them to be, to make money from less successful movies. Mm -hmm. And the third is sort of the rise of China, am I getting that correct? Uh, yes,
1: you guys, you've comprehended Yay, that me. very well. I I, I would say that the yeah <laughs> yeah look at you not not everybody who's interviewed me has actually read the book thoroughly. I don't think yes, and I would say you know the the rise of Netflix. I would you know very related to that fold into it is you know the the golden age of TV, which right. includes Netflix and Amazon, of course, and all. If I'm cable watching networks. Breaking Bad commercial free mm-hmm. for forty five hours yes. at home. Mm-hmm.
0: It's got to be something pretty fantastic to get me into the theater.
1: Yeah, right. It has been an amazing theatrical experience. Not to mention that, like Breaking Bad, essentially is a bi- one big forty-five hour story. Right. right. I mean, it's essentially a really long movie. That's I mean, fair, right. I think that's, that's a way fair, to understand right. it.
0: And it's sort of a cliche now, right? That, the, yeah. that these, the Game of Thrones and, and Breaking Bad are, are a very long movie, but it's
1: true. It is true.
0: Uh, and even the stuff that's mediocre, right, is is. Good enough to keep me engaged. So, what is going to get me to the theater? Yeah. And specifically, what is going to get someone who spends money on a movie
1: right out to the theater? Right, sure, right, because the mar—you know—the the, you mean most—you know—TV obviously you, you have a subscription to it, so the marginal cost of watching that ne- next Netflix or HBO show is zero, and the marginal cost of going to see a movie is substantial, especially if you have kids and you need babysitters and everything. Um, so, you know, you've so many good options for zero dollars. You're going to get you out of the house. It better be. It's one of two things: either something so spectacular it's it's you see, it would be inferior to watch it in your living room, or that rare thing that happens once in a while still, which is like a cultural moment that you want to be part of. And everybody's talking about Get Out; you can't miss Get Out. Right.
0: Um, I want to talk about more about the, the the industry in general and the book, but I uh, or what you what we can learn from the book. But I do want to highlight something that surprised me when I started reading it because the title doesn't say so and there's nothing in the the copy that indicates this. But at least half the book is about the story of Sony Pictures specifically. Mm -hmm. You have great access and great detail and that's because you're using... You tell me you filled the line <laughs>
1: because of the the hack of Sony Pictures now a little over three years ago. Yeah, so basically that provided you enormous source material, right? So um, we, you're correct. We didn't we didn't advertise it heavily because I didn't want people to see this as a hack book or a Sony hack book, book or this is the story of what happened three years ago at Sony. Yes, exactly right. That wouldn't probably be so com- that wouldn't be so uh, compelling. This but it is
0: the- super compelling because it's the kind of reporting you wouldn't normally be able to do. You have all this insight into what Michael Linton's thinking, mm-hmm. what Amy mm-hmm. Packles is thinking, because they've written it in their own words. Yeah in a way that you can't really normally get ever. True. Well, this a, is a... Contemporaneous notes filed by the, the people in right. charge of the theater. Yes,
1: that was absolutely... That was my into the book. That's where I started was this, this hack happened. Is there a book in the hack? And that's really where I started three years ago. And first it was like, maybe this is like uh, too big to fail. Well, you're, you're inside the drama and you see what happens, you know. Uh, but uh, there were two problems with that. One is, you know, the you know, uh, the problems in a movie studio and an executive getting fired is not not exactly, you know, akin to the American economy almost collapsing. And uh, it was so overcovered at the time, there wasn't a lot left to say about what was happening there. But I did, the more I dug into it, the more I thought, hey, this, you know, the stuff they're talking about are all these issues that I think... I think about and everybody I know who goes to the movies thinks about. The people in Hollywood are actually having the same kind of debates. Why can't we make original movies for adults anymore? Why is it so hard? How are we going to handle this franchise age? What are we going to do that will appeal to people in China? How are we going to compete with Marvel and Star Wars? That's what the people at Sony were debating. And I realized, you know, this is a great And, you know, you write a book like this, it can't just be me pontificating, or it could, but I don't think that's such a good book. But you want to have characters. You want to have an arc. You want to see people grappling with problems. And the Sony executives whose emails were released, I think, combined with the documents that get you into the economics of their business and combined with some additional reporting that I did, provides a a narrative and characters that – that drive the, all these big issues we're talking about.
0: Because if you remember the Sony hack, and it's hard to remember now because mm-hmm. we're, we're post-Wikileaks mm-hmm. and then everything is, is now, is, every, everything has been hacked, um, there was a couple months of enormous coverage of, of what was in the documents um, and lots of embarrassing personal stuff about Amy Pascal's shopping habits and, and, and racial slurs, and mm-hmm. um, she came off much worse, I think, just sort of the nature of her job and the nature of, of how she communicated via yes. email. Um, And you know everyone sort of harvested the emails for salacious stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I pulled out something that uh, David Goldberg had written to Michael Litten about how to fix the music business. Yeah. But you went and said, "Oh, there's a story of a business here, yeah. um, and the reasons why it's interesting for for you and for readers is Sony is a is a studio that had been doing well." Mm-hmm. And could not keep up with the move into blockbusters, which is a little hard to reconcile, because if you think a little bit about this, these are the people who had Spider-Man, which yeah. is one of the most successful blockbuster franchise films franchises yeah of the early. so what what how how come they weren't able to go well, with Spider-Man's working? Mm-hmm. Let's do
1: more of this. Sure. Um, Spider-Man, you know, was sort of in an age when you you know you have these diverse movie slates and you have a couple of tent poles. Spider-Man was a tent pole, combined with all your, your Adam Sandler comedies and your and your Star Vehicles with Will Smith and your original dramas and all those sorts of things. So Sony did succeed with Spider-Man, but they uh, what they weren't able to do was sort of turn that into a brand, turn it into a cinematic universe. The thing about Spider-Man was it was really attached, for them, in their mind, the way Sony used to do things, it was attached to the talent. It was attached to Tobey Maguire, the star, and Sam Raimi, the director. And as they got more and more powerful and demanded more and more money, the profits of those movies got down, went down, and the creatively got worse. You know, if you recall, Spider-Man 3, when he turns into, into an, E- Emo Peter Parker. Is it the one where he's dancing? And he dances in the streets. Yeah. right. It was pretty terrible. And even though it grossed more than the prior two, the Spider-Man films, the profits were way down because they were giving all the money to the talent. Um, and so they, But they, there's multiple
0: Spider-Man reboots,
1: and yeah. they, then they Andrew rebooted it. Garfield. Was yeah, a Spider-Man. they rebooted it with Andrew Garfield, and it was not so successful anymore. They they didn't. They just didn't do it well, and that was the only successful franchise that they had. Um, they weren't able to transition. And by the time the reboot came out, this was when Marvel Studios with Avengers and Captain America and Iron Man and so on was on the scene, created a new, more appealing to global moviegoers style of superhero film. And uh, Sony was really, really behind the curve. And uh, the bigger issue you're pointing to that I should mention is, you know, it just happened to be Sony the hack. But if I was going to pick a studio... That you know would be a great character, so to speak, for this transition from the star-driven, you know, diverse slate era of filmmaking to the franchise era of filmmaking. Sony would probably be the best one because they were so successful in the 2000s, and they've had such a hard time in the 2010s. They haven't been able to make this transition. And
0: it wasn't the the Amy. Am I, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Is it
1: Pascal? Pascal.
0: Pascal was was above making movies that lots of people wanted to go see. Right. Mm-hmm. She made plenty of Adam Sandler movies. He had mm-hmm. basically his own corner of the lot, Yeah, uh, lots of dumb Will Ferrell movies, mm-hmm. um, nothing wrong with that, mm-hmm. um, but her heart wasn't in it, no. right? Those were the things that, that bought houses, yep. and then what she really liked was making sort of these mid-tier sort of movies with Tom Hanks. Yes, she liked
1: making— int- Captain she, Phillips. Yeah, Captain Phillips, a Social Network. These are the kind of movies that really drove her and excited her, you know? And, you know, she'd work with filmmakers like James L. Brooks, even though they'd cost her a lot of money because she believed in them and they had made her money in the past. She loved her talent and she loved her, you know, she got into the movie business not because she wanted to run a studio. She got into it because she loved making movies, you know. She, she is now a producer again and she was a producer to start with and that's really where her— She made The Post. Yeah, she was Oscar-nominated. That is a classic Amy Pascal-type movie, right? absolutely. Stars, prestige, Mm -hmm. real story that you should care about. Yep, absolutely. It's an old-fashioned, down-the-middle, you know, prestige, quote-unquote, prestige movie. Did that movie make money? It made a little bit of money, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like it made a little bit of money, which is totally fine. And, you know, it used to be you have ten of those, and they all make a little money, combine them together, and you have one or two Spider-Mans, and you have a great year. But now— it's rare that those movies make any money, and the little bits of money that some of them do is erased by the ones that flop and then make make nothing on DVD. And which is why the only way to make real profits is f- in the movie business these days is to have these your Jumanjis and your Fast and Furious. Well,
0: there's there's a couple versions that I, we, I want to talk about that, but quickly we make money because people advertise with us. Mm-hmm. So please don't forward past this ad. You should listen <laughs> to it. This advertiser is awesome because they support Recode Media. Listen up. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion people. So food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? Good news, farmers are already using AI to help increase crop yields. They use Watson and the IBM cloud they provide access to weather data, analyze satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and reduce water waste. So as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. That's good. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart. Today's show is brought to you by Namely, which we use at Vox Media. For real, it's true. When was the last time you checked your pay stub or picked benefits at work? Chances are it wasn't easy. HR software has been clunky and hard to use ever since HR has been a thing, which is forever. One technology company takes a different approach. Namely is the only all in one HR, payroll, and benefit software employees love to use. You want to clock in? Easy. You want to write a performance review? Easy. You want to schedule some vacation time? Namely makes it easy to do. You can do it from your phone. There's a social news feed like Facebook, without all the bad parts, where employees can share updates, celebrate birthdays, and give shout outs for a job well done. Namely doesn't just make work easier, it actually makes it a little more fun too. Over 1,000 companies use Namely every day. Vox Media is one of those companies. If you're in HR or if you run your own business, it's time to see Namely in action. You can get a free demo by visiting Namely.com slash Kafka. One more time, that's Namely, N-A-M-E-L-Y dot com slash Kafka. See how you can build a better workplace with Namely. Back here with Ben Fritz, who wrote The Big Picture, which you should go buy. What's the best way for someone
1: to buy your book? Do you care if they buy a hardcover or paperback or e-copy? There's no paperback yet, but I I don't care. Don't buy, if, don't buy the paperback. Don't buy the paperback. You're going to have a hard time. But uh, I don't care if you buy an e-book or a hardcover, whatever you like. You, if you want to support your local bookstore, that's awesome. I highly what, what recommend doing What boosts your ra- – is it um, – but, but of, co- of course, there's Amazon rankings, yeah, and if you buy if you buy it on Amazon, you boost my ranking, which gets more people to pay attention to it. So that's great too. Go buy it on Amazon. Who also
0: makes movies? We can talk about that. In a yes, minute, they too. do. Um, the counterpoint to Sony is Disney, yes. and which owns Marvel, Lucasfilm, Pixar, um, dominates movie making, mm-hmm. right? Or dominates this era of movie, movie making. Dominates the blockbuster franchise version of it. Um, I talk about this all the time. Those three, those three studios that, uh, that Disney bought um, about collectively about fifteen billion dollars. Sort of mm-hmm. the best M and A in, in modern media. Um, is their success today solely because they had the foresight to buy those three properties? If
1: you bought anyone who bought those three properties, would be doing as well as they are? No, it's not entirely that. I mean, that's a big chunk um, of it. The, their success is also, frankly, their willingness to abandon. Every other kind of movie. Bob Iger sold Miramax. He shut down Touchstone, which means he stopped making indie movies. He stopped making R-rated movies. He stopped making romantic comedies. He stopped making original dramas for adults. Bob Iger didn't come from the film business. He came from TV, and he was willing to look at it with sort of this, you know, frankly, kind of cold financial approach and say the Brandon movies make more money. You know, he said to me, it's quoted in the book, he said, you know, he loves movies at the time. Spotlight, when I interviewed him, had one best picture. He said, I love Spotlight. I love movies like that. But But movies like that are a terrible business. They don 't even in success, the profit margin is pretty thin, terrible, terrible business. I think is the quote right? <laughs> terrible, terrible business, yes, and the profit margin's thin. the profit margin for the brand and movies is better. so he was, he bought them very smart, and the other smart thing he did is he largely left, has left them alone. They have their own creative culture, and the creative culture of Marvel is quite different than the creative culture of Pixar, for example, and the people who work there are all passionate about what they do. The Marvel executives are Marvel geeks, the Pixar people are animation geeks and you know, it, there used to be this idea, and I think Amy Pascal at Sony would exemplify it, where, well, no, this, you know, the studio head of production, you know, he or she, he or she ultimately gets involved and you know decides what's best. And it, it, the, if it, the comic book people shouldn't make comic book movies because they're too geeky and they're not going to know what the broad audience wants. And so you'd have the superhero movies that were you'd bring not in an adult
0: people. to say, we're going to translate this nerdy thing into something that has broader reach. Yes,
1: exactly. And it turns out that the opposite has succeeded. Marvel, Marvel's run by Marvel geeks. And uh, Bob Iger and Disney have let them do it, and they've been massively successful by leaning into everything that worked about the comics. If you care at all
0: about this stuff, by the way, your your story of Marvel and how that brand was built and nearly sold and and how Sony could have bought the entire thing for, what, $25 Sony had the opportunity
1: to buy the movie rights to virtually every Marvel character for $25 million, and the response... no, that's too much. The response to the executives was, who's ever going to be interested in seeing a movie about Iron Man or Captain America or Black Panther? Nobody cares about them. All they cared about was Spider-Man.
0: So they just bought Spider-Man for a few million dollars if, for, for what would have be essentially been the cost of like a half an Adam Sandler movie that yep. passed on the rest of Marvel. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing story. Go go read it for that alone, <laughs> read the whole book. And again, back to what you were talking about on Disney, it's, it's not just that he bought those franchises that he said... We're going to get out of this remaining – the other businesses because yeah. the risk involved in making a movie that m- might be very, very commercial mm-hmm. um, but doesn't have a brand attached to it, It's too high. Yeah. Um, and also the, the mid-tier movie, yeah. much less – the upside there is too limited, yeah. and we can still lose a ton of money. Yeah. Um, because, by the way, you can make a failed blockbuster movie, right? You, Absolutely. Not, n- attaching Marvel or Lucasfilm or—actually, all those are always successful. But you you could make a very commercial movie attached to a brand and still won't work. Mm-hmm. Um, where I'm—what I've been thinking a lot about is why studios aren't spending money on the very low-budget movies. Um, I just talked to Jason Blum last yeah. week at South by Southwest. Um, it seems like— and. Talk back and forth about this. He, his formula, mm-hmm. where you you cap your downside. Yeah, he says he can't lose money essentially by spending up to five million dollars on a movie, mm-hmm. um, and then and then theoretically could have really really big paydays um, when you get a Get Out mm-hmm. or a uh, what else did he do this uh, year? Split the Purge. Split. Split. Yeah. Um, really big. I can imagine why Disney would say our model works because we get we, we only want giant home runs. But why aren't more studios – why aren't more people trying to do the Jason Blum method where you say we're going to cap this. Uh, we're st-. By the way, we're not trying to make art films. Mm-hmm. We want to make right. commercial films. Yep. Yep. Why aren't people trying to do that sort of low, low-budget
1: – minimized risk model of movie making? I think it's a, it's a, it's a good question why, like, you know, the, your Paramounts and your Sonys have not been doing that as successfully as Universal, as with Jason Blum. And uh, in, I, all I can say is I know in some cases they've tried to do it, and they've done it poorly, and <laughs> they haven't managed to get any successful films out of it. You know, Paramount actually had a division, I'm forgetting what it's called, but it was devoted entirely to trying to do super low-budget films and trying to do just that. And basically none of the movies that came out of that made it to theaters (laughs) they were all went straight to VOD they they just weren't very successful at it Mm -hmm. and um, you know Jason and the people he works with have managed to have a few major hits coming out of uh, coming out of that formula I think that falls in the category of one of those things that seems easy, easy to say but is hard to do just like saying you know just like Make a superhero cinematic universe easy to say, but look at the results Warner Brothers had with DC, and you know it's easier said than done. Following the easier said than done, you spend some
0: time in the movie, some time in the book, talking about Netflix's move into movies, Amazon's move into movies. Um, these are guys with essentially unlimited resources, yeah, right, billions yes. of dollars to throw at content, um, and basically they have not had real success in the movies. Um, you know, Netflix will tell you that Bright was mm. successful who knows but it doesn't seem likely first of all it's a terrible movie yep uh, and second, I think if you sh- Netflix can shove something in your face and, mm-hmm. and say that you've watched it, right? But that's yeah. not that's not success. That's not success. So Absolutely. Th- when I ever ask someone why hasn't Amazon and, and Netflix been successful at movies yet, the the standard answer is sort of a shrug and hey, movies are hard, mm-hmm. and they just, just haven't had enough at bats. Do you
1: think that's the case? Well, I, I would dispute your thesis a bit. I would say Amazon has had some success in the le- the f- field they're playing in, which is which is the indie movie. Two of the most successful indie. And I know it's weird to say Indian Amazon, but two of the most successful, lowish budget prestige movies of the past couple of years have been Manchester by the Sea and The Big Sick, which were released by Amazon in theaters first before they went onto Prime. Right
0: now, those are movies that someone else made. They bought mm-hmm. and so, they bought how, and we'll released. Mark we'll and, and, yes. and Netflix,
1: by the way, has done some of that. does the same thing, right? Not in movies. Yes, they bought. Show, they yeah. Well, well, they actually bought Mudbound at right. Sundance nominated for Oscars. Uh, I mean, people liked it. Who the, who the heck knows how many people watched it? But. Um, they've at least had critical success yep. and and success by indie movie standards yes. in theater so that so that, and that's significant in the indie movies the large studios have significantly but not completely abandon that field. And Amazon and Netflix, especially Amazon, are just completely taking it over because they are—they don't care about making profits on individual films the way the studios have to. They've taken over that, and the question now I think you're pointing to is as they start getting into bigger budget films, mid-budget films, $50, $100 million, star vehicles, Will Smith vehicles, can they succeed? The one thing they can't do so far, that the, one of the few advantages the major studios have left is Netflix and Amazon – when they're streaming, don't seem to figure out how How do you create an event, right? How do you make this a significant thing? When a movie comes out and you see it on billboards everywhere and it's playing in the local multiplex near you and people who are seeing it, we're all seeing it together and we're seeing it at the same time. It's not just on my queue and I'm going to get to it. We're all seeing Black Panther right now. That's a major event. Uh, that's something that Netflix has not figured out how to do. And that's that seems fine with TV shows, but with movies, that's a problem. Do you think if Netflix made Black Panther the exact same movie? Yeah. Um, and said
0: we're opening at Friday mm-hmm. uh, by the way, if you want to have an uh, a Black Panther party yep. right we'll we'll accommodate that sure. or we'll throw right. screenings in theaters mm-hmm. or
1: however we want to do it, do you think that movie has the same degree of success culturally? I think, you know, that's a debate I've been having with some people recently because it's a big question. Um, and my my argument would be no I don't think it would have the same impact culturally because I don't think we would I don't think we'd all be seeing it around the same time. I think we some of us would get to it when we get to it. Um, and I think the fact that it feels like it's a big deal to go out of the house, to go see it, that takes a real effort. So therefore, like, it's something that seems more meaningful to you. You're seeing it in a group and you see other people screaming, laughing, having a great time. And then the fact that we've all seen it within a span of just a few weeks and we're all – therefore, we're all talking about it. I think that absolutely is, is uh, different. You know, I, I, I remember some of the most significant movies of my lifetime and where, you know, being in the theater or waiting online to see Jurassic Park, let's say, or something – even the TV shows I loved, like The Simpsons or Freaks and Geeks, you know, I don't remember where I was sitting. I don't remember the moment I saw yeah. that episode. And
0: I think the counterpoint is Game of Thrones, right, where yeah. lots of people are watching it at mm. 9 o'clock on yeah. Sunday. But then there's a ton of viewing that happens within the next couple days. Yeah. Right? So everyone
1: who's interested in Game of Thrones is watching it within the week. Right. But so a, game, a TV show can build to that for uh-huh. sure, a TV show that becomes successful, right? But a movie is a one-time thing. So you can't sort of build up, you know, after a season or two, Game of Thrones becomes this big thing. We all talk about it every Monday after seeing it the prior night. And, uh, Perhaps you know if Netflix was making every Marvel movie by the time they got you know uh, they they had made a bunch of them become more and more significant. But for a one-off movie, you just can't create that overnight in a, uh, online.
0: So you you're reporting the book for a couple years. You finished the reporting when last year I
1: finished I finished the all the research um, in like late 2016, and then so, I, and then I started my writing. So this is the problem with,
0: with anyone who writes mm-hmm. a book, right? Um, but I think particularly if someone who's doing what you're doing, you're writing about something that's in flux. Mm-hmm which is that there's a bunch of stuff that's happened in the movie business. Wait, has anything interesting happened in Hollywood in the past six months? That is not in your— I I, was—because I've got an advanced copy here that I got from you months ago, and I thought maybe there was pressure. You would have felt pressure to, like, slap in
1: something about Disney Fox. I I mean, there was no way to do it. it's not in there. It's not in there. Not in the final version. There's no way to do it. Um, I mean— let for say, the last change I made to the book, look, November or December, was I I had had something in there saying, you know, the business-friendly Trump administration is likely to uh, to yeah. approve the at yes. time Warner yes, deal. Did you see that? That yeah. that is slightly changed in the final that version. That's the last change I made. But Disney Fox, I you know, I I don't have in there. It happened too late. But I I would like to believe that that is that if you've read the book, that deal is not surprising to you.
0: So you lay out the case for why Disney would be rapacious, why mm-hmm. Disney would want more because they're mm-hmm. doing it really well. Um, beyond the fact that if this deal goes through, that this gives Disney the Fantastic Four and X-Men, X-Men franchise, and Avatar. Um, what other impact does it have on, on the movie business? It just sort of accelerates the trend we're talking about? Yeah, I
1: mean, it's it's two things. It takes us towards, you know, the streaming age. of think obviously the ultimate motivation for everything Disney does now these days is to compete with Netflix. That's where they're headed, and those are going to take control of Hulu. So they'll have three streaming platforms. Maybe, maybe you think there's that? the thesis, right? That maybe this is a chip that they give to Comcast. Oh yes, well de- yes, that is possible, depending on how you know everything going on with Sky and everything. But I, I, certainly Disney wants to take over Hulu. Um, that is what they say publicly. Yeah. Okay. Fair and, enough. And yes. may well believe. I I do believe that. Yeah. Um, uh, and they'll have their own Disney streaming service they're launching and they have ESPN and they, you know, they, they, they know they need to compete aggressively with Netflix and go directly to consumers. And the Fox, Fox deal gives them Hulu, gives them more content. Disney, you know, Disney uh, has really shrunk the amount of content they create significantly, which has worked great for them in the movie theater model. Online, you need a little bit more. They're not going to produce the 700 pieces a year that Netflix is doing right now, but they need more. They want to have more brands because Disney's all about brands and after they get Avatar, They get X-Men, and, um, you know, they're getting, like, Fox Searchlight, which is ironic because Bob Iger shut down Miramax, but I think that's a business I think pairs well with Hulu, should they hold on to it. Um, Hulu is going to serve their adult streaming service, and, yeah. and Fox Searchlight makes movies for adults. But what, what you are going to see, though, is no matter what they keep from Fox, Fox is going to be shrunk down, if not ultimately abandoned, you know, and we're, we're moving to an age of fewer studios, which is what you see, you know, you see in any business when they're, when a business is kind of old and new competition comes uh, at them aggressively, then the older businesses start consolidating. They have to do that. They need the resources to compete and because there's not as much money to be made in the old movie-making model. So the the old studios have to consolidate in order to challenge Netflix and Amazon and soon Apple. Up until the
0: Disney-Fox deal, um, and you say this in your book, the the
1: conventional wisdom is that
0: the idea that you're going to see the movie in the theater and you're going to have to wait many months to see it at home, Mm -hmm. um, that's going away. Because Netflix, because Amazon, because, by the way, the studios want Blind. to stop this. Yep. They they want to figure out some way that you can watch the movie relatively quickly at home, mm-hmm. shorten that window.
1: Yeah.
0: Now it seems like because Disney is buying Fox, Disney is, was the one studio that didn't want to do this because yep. they've got a model that works really well. That 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 momentum has stopped. Mm-hmm. I asked Kevin Mayer about this on stage. He says, "Yeah, this model works great for us. We're going to keep doing it." Yeah. So, do you think we're going to go several more years where you're still going to have to learn to wait many months to see Black Panther?
1: I do think where that's that's on hold. The Disney Fox deal makes you know takes two studios out of the equation who want to do that, and you know I think Warner Brothers certainly feels like they can't be in the lead on this because they're you know trying to get bought by AT and T, and this something like this that's disruptive. What might help the government's case against them? So I think uh, the idea of movies coming to home sooner is on hold, although ultimately it still seems inevitable that window is going to shrink. What I do think could happen sooner that's interesting is now that everybody's pushing towards streaming, you're going to see as soon as a movie's available to watch at home. Right now it's on DVD and VOD for a few right. months before it goes to pay TV, HBO, or Netflix. That's going to start to shrink. I think you're going to start to see the movies get on your streaming slash pay TV platform, HBO, essentially a streaming platform now, Netflix, or the new service Disney's launching. I wouldn't be surprised if a movie's only available on DVD and VOD for a few weeks before it's available to stream on your subscription service. Because the idea
0: that you're going to buy a physical or even digital copy of something that era is gone. That's it. yeah, that era is going away. That, that era is that, left in music, right? Yeah. Everyone is now uh, understands that uh, uh, that you consume something by paying a recurring subscription fee and streaming it whenever you want.
1: Right, sure. A- absolutely right. Yeah, consumers that, that is what consumers like now. It's what they're used to, especially younger consumers. And then obviously Disney as they launched a streaming service wants to make it really appealing. Well, one way to make it appealing is this is the way Maybe this is the only way you can watch a Disney movie at home, you know, or or, or it's, it's it's a way you can watch it and at home right away. And if you're
0: a studio that, that's, that's sad because you've lost DVD sales yeah. and you're losing with EST, right, that's buying mm-hmm. through iTunes, a digital download, you say, well, Yes, but you, now you're going to get this monthly recurring fee—ten, $10, 15 yeah. bucks, whatever your share of that is—and you're going to get that all year long, yes. no matter what you right. get people. So
1: yeah. you're better off in the yeah. End. You've acquired you've acquired a consumer, right? As they say, and um, you've got that recurring revenue. And now you're starting to get data on that consumer. You know who they are. You know what they like. You know it's helpful for marketing. It's yeah. helpful, it's helpful even for thinking about what you should make next. I mean that that is clearly more valuable is to is to own a consumer than to, than to sell them a one off piece of content.
0: Back to uh, to Amazon um, and Netflix. Netflix, Amazon specifically, um, again, in terms of shift, right? Yeah. Um, Roy Price, who was running Amazon Studios, is out mm-hmm. as of last fall. Yep. And at the same time, Amazon said, you know this whole thing where we're doing transparent and we win awards? That's great. We mm-hmm. need giant blockbusters now, yep. and that's where we're going to spend our money. Um, does And as you point out in the book... Amazon had carved out this niche as we're the we're the giant conglomerate that supports indie filmmakers. Yeah. Um, does that go away as well? Ha- they haven't been explicit
1: about that. They haven't been explicit about it in film, and so in in TV they're making that switch fast. They want to have their Game of Thrones as they all say. All the
0: quirky all the quirky comedies out the window. Yep,
1: those are gone. They're not buying those anymore. Really big hits. They spent. Something like more than two hundred fifty million dollars just for the rights to, Lord, to do a Lord of the Rings show. By the way, a Lord of the Rings show for which they can't use any of the characters who are in the films, right? So, and by the way, that's it's it going to be a
0: half billion, right? By the time they're done, actually yeah. By making the time they're stuff. making it, and
1: everything absolutely, yeah, massive investment. Um, so, in TV, they're making that switch. In film, they haven't yet, you know, and, and they're, they're slowly starting to do some slightly bigger films. They're partnering with studios. They're partnering with Warner Brothers um, on, a, I'm forgetting the name, but on a, an adaptation of a book that might be a 40 or $50 million movie. So, they're starting to move in that direction. But they just signed the deal with Alexander Payne, who's an indie filmmaker. They're defi- that's definitely the, the part of the, of the film business that they that they have latched onto is something that differentiates them, and I think gets them more affluent consumers who will buy a lot of stuff on Amazon, which is, of course, their most important goal.
0: Bringing this back to Sony, when you decide, hey, I'm going to root through the, uh, the the Sony hack mm-hmm. emails as well, um, did you think? I don't know. I don't want to make a book about using stolen emails. Again, you talk about in the introduction. This book is based on stolen emails. How much, did it take you a while to get comfortable
1: with that idea? Um, I think, actually, it, w- it was more in the, once I started doing it that it started becoming comfortable. At first, I felt fine. And like other people, as soon as the hack happened, I'd gone through to find some of the juiciest. Did you Google yourself? Of course. Yeah. Of course I searched myself. Yeah. And... Uh, Am, am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Oh, yeah. Okay, Fuck good. Yeah. I, yeah. So I found, uh search for Ben Fritz, and I found this time I wrote an article about Amy Pascal that she really didn't like. And another, an executive, uh, Jeff Robinoff of course, with Warner Brothers, was like, don't worry about him. Fuck Ben Fritz. That's got to be very exciting. It was, yeah. yeah. That was a great, yeah, the fact that a few executives are talking about how much they fucking hate me. That felt, that felt great. Um, but, yeah, no. going into it, I was like, I, I felt like, you know, this is such great material. This is going to be... I just thought I felt good about it, I would say, and and when I sold the book and that book proposal, and I started, okay, now I have to read every single one and, you know, find what's interesting and relevant. And then, and the way I did it was I was like, okay, right now I'm reading Amy Pascal's emails, and then I'm going to read Michael Linton's emails. So there would be a few months when I'm just living in her world and almost getting in her head. And that started to feel uncomfortable. Did you tell them, hey— Yes. you know, I'm, I'm reading every single email. Yeah, I told it. I told them ahead of you know as soon as the book proposal was out. Ironically, or let's say poetic justice for me, the book proposal leaked before I sold it, so the Hollywood Reporter <laughs> got their hands on it. So I called Amy and Michael and said, "You're going to read about this. I'm doing this. I'm going to do it as respectfully as I can, but just want you to know." So yeah, and, there and were at times that I was point,
0: they everyone had rummaged through their underwear drawer, yes, right? So it, did they feel any differently about it coming out in book form as opposed to?
1: 40 different stories at the time they seemed you know they were not pleased but they were like well you know we know you and you know i told them like i'm not writing anything about your underwear your amazon orders about your kids i'm not going to write about any of that stuff i promise you and they seemed sort of like they, they were resigned to it and they seemed okay with it i would say as, as the process went on they both and they both and other people at sony went back and forth and they're like i'm okay with this or oh my god this is a nightmare you know but i i did i did my best to you know i did, I did it by fact-checking with them. I let them know everything that's going to be in the book. So, um, at minimum, they couldn't accuse me of you, surprising them. Have you heard from them since? Uh, I have—I what, what, guess what I can say is uh-huh. that I have, I have presented everything to them to make sure they wouldn't be surprised by what would be published. And uh, any responses they may have given to me, uh, they, they asked, I think, it would not be for public consumption. Again,
0: it, it's, it's, it's intimate— but it's not leering, yeah, right. Absolutely, it's, it's there's yes. Amy Pascal is at, at getting a mammogram, and she's mm-hmm. she's she's jotting down emails. But it's you're not making fun of the fact she's getting a mammogram. You're, no. She's trying to save a movie,
1: right? Right. I mean, you can't. I write about this is their personality because they both bring their personalities to their jobs, and you can't understand how they do their job without knowing you know that Michael is like this very cool customer who comes from a background of great privilege. And it was a bit disengaged, let's say, from the movie business. It could have been any business for him. And Amy is, you know, really neurotic and really passionate about movies. And she's up writing almost incomprehensible emails at 1 a.m. that are 5,000 words to her, you know, to her subordinates all the time. So you get to know them in that sense. But I, I'm, you know, I'm, there's nothing about their purely personal lives. They don't push in their business, especially nothing about their families. And while, say, while I was researching it, anytime I started reading an email and I was like, this is clearly personal especially if it involved their family, I, you know, I just stopped reading it and went on to the next one.
0: You write about the movie business. You've done it for a long time. You like movies. Yes, I do. Right? Like yep. a lot of people who write cover of this business. Yes. Do you, after a deep dive of several years into this mm-hmm.
1: book, are you hopeful about movies? Or are you resigned to the future of movies? I am. You know, I am hopeful. I, I would say I, after I was mostly done with the manuscript, I felt a little depressed. And then when I sat back to write the conclusion, and especially I thought more about the streaming platforms, I feel... I'd say maybe two-thirds better and one-third worse. And the, the two-thirds better is that, um, you know, what 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 any fan of movies really should want is for great movies to be made, for great content to be made, you know. And the, the digital companies, you know, are creating more great visual content than ever before. And some of it is pure movies, and then some of it is a limited series. And and some of it is a TV season, but it's only eight episodes, and we start to say, what is the difference? What is the difference when it's on, if you're watching it at home on your TV or your iPad, what's the difference between a movie or a limited series, or, you know, a short TV season, it all starts to blur. And a lot of TV shows now, you know, are from people who used to be, quote-unquote, filmmakers, and our ideas, and in the past, they would have brought to a studio so, to make into a film. you're going
0: to get amazing stuff delivered to you at home in yeah. different lengths, and you can decide if you want to call it a movie or a TV show or a webisode. Yes. Um, seems like, though, the idea that you're going to go to the movie theater and see the social network. Yeah. Um, that that's gone and it's not coming back. That if you're going to go to the movie theater, it's generally going to be to go see a Marvel movie or mm-hmm. something like that, yep. and then you'll have some anomalies like the get-outs of the world, yeah. or again, maybe Jason Blum will make other horror movies that you'll go... There'll be some weird anomalies. Yep. Um. It seems like the idea of going to see a movie theater and seeing Lady Bird, yep. right, in a couple of years will just be gone. Yes,
1: yep. that, that's disappearing. And, that's, that's, and, and how do you feel about that? I have mixed feelings about that, right? On the one hand, if more Lady Birds are made... No matter how they're made, no matter where you watch it, that seems like a great thing. But, you know, what's missing is what we were talking about earlier, this idea of we're all seeing it together at the same time. It's part of the cultural conversation. It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an event that impacts our culture. That is lessening and will go away. And that, I think, is a shame. You know, when we are all just watching things on our digital queue and getting around to it when we get around to it and you and I are not watching the same things at all, and if we are, certainly not at the same time, you know, that, that lessens the ability, I think, of art to impact our culture. And that is something movies have done really successfully, you know, for the past century. And that is a bummer. And if you're Netflix or
0: someone like that, you
1: say, you're just
0: complaining because they used to listen to radio plays and and things evolve and things Mm -hmm. change. And by the way, we can't tell you, but lots of people watched Orange is the New Black. Mm -hmm. And they were having a shared experience.
1: We just weren't talking about it that Mm -hmm. way. You don't buy it. I don't. I mean— I, I I mean I think it's 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 evident. I mean it's evident that it's not impacting our culture in in the same way. I mean in Netflix's whole business model is we have something for everybody. You know not not we all are watching the same thing at the same time. That's definitely their model. So I mean I believe them that people are watching it, but I don't. I mean, I, I I don't believe that ninety nine percent of the content their Netflix is producing. Is uh, is really impactful on our culture, and especially their movies, and I, that is undeniable. And if they try to argue against that, I think it'd be laughable that they have they have yet to produce a movie that has had any significant impact on on American culture. We got y'all whipped up. That's a good way to leave. The <laughs> yeah.
0: um, ben, promote your book in your words.
1: Uh, if, if if you're go buy yes, the... please go buy the big picture: the fight up. for the future of movies by uh, the really handsome author Ben Fritz, and. Uh, you know, If you're someone who has wondered why are there so many superhero movies and sequels and remakes and spinoffs at the multiplex, why are there so few interesting original films for adults, uh, this book explains why that happened, how we got here, and what the future of movies may be as all the, as all the digital companies are moving in. Sold. I would buy it. <laughs>
0: Except I've already read it. Uh, you guys will enjoy this. If you've listened to this podcast, if you've gotten all the way through this podcast, you will love this book. Go buy the book. Thanks, Ben, for joining us. Thank you so much, Peter. Look forward to reading your stuff again in the journal. Uh, thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media. They get those sponsors on this show so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits this show, and to my producers, Gold Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. I am back next week. I will see you then. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. 16 million new-collar jobs will be created by 2024. To help fill them, IBM's new education model gives high school students workplace experience and an associate's degree. 90 P-TECH schools are already preparing graduates for tomorrow's STEM careers. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at IBM.com slash p